to the Blattcast. Yes, it is I, Christian Blatt, here for a very special episode of the Blattcast. Once again, sharing with each and every one of you out there in Blattcast Nation a conversation that I recently had with the great Chris Claremont. Now, this is the fourth conversation I've had with him for the Blattcast and the third in the past 14 months. This one is about specifically the film version of Dark Phoenix and the TV series of Legion. Now, when I spoke with him, it was about a month ago, so in the middle of June, and Legion's third season hadn't premiered yet. He'd seen it, but I hadn't. So if you're interested in some of my thoughts on season three of Legion, I'm on the panel of Legion for the after show at AfterBuzz TV. That's Mondays at 9 Pacific on YouTube. You can also find the archive versions, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Jason Blair can be found there as well. So it's out there if you uh, want to find that. As for the conversation you're about to hear, uh, as I said, it took place back in June. This was a special episode of one of the other shows I co-host, the Popcorn Talk Network's Marvel Movie News. The other voice you're going to hear is my co-host for that show, the great Zach Wilson on Twitter and Instagram, at that Zach Wilson, whom I've actually been trying to get on the Blackcast for quite a while. And what do you know? I figured out a pretty sneaky way to do it. <laughs> Just repurpose some audio that we did for another show. Anyway, without further ado, let's welcome back to the Blackcast the great Chris Claremont, best known for his legendary 17-year run on the X-Men. His website is chrisclaremont.com. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, we wanted to start with uh, Dark Phoenix, and uh, you know, you're new to Instagram, and I do think everybody should follow you at Chris Clear Mountain. That's where they can find you. Uh, and uh, on your Instagram, one of your followers asked if you could give the pros and cons for the Dark Phoenix movie, and you said, "Pro, it began. Con, it ended." I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and just kind of summarize your experience watching this film and seeing these situations and characters that you created. You know. 40 years ago play out on the big screen? Well, it's complicated. The, the, none of this occurs in a vacuum. Dark Phoenix, the story, weirdly enough, actually occurred in a vacuum in the sense that no other Marvel series was even then that focused on a female character no other Marvel series was focused on a tragic ending to a female character or to any character in that sense. I mean, I suppose the closest one could come to it would be the death of Gwen Stacy for Spider-Man, but it was Gwen Stacy, his girlfriend. It wasn't like Spider-Man or had died. Um, whereas the film especially in terms of when it was released and what it was released against, ended up as the third leg of what is actually a, a quartet of major Marvel releases this year. Uh, first you had Captain Marvel, then you had Avengers uh, Endgame, then you had Dark Phoenix, and what's coming up, Spider-Man. So suddenly it's boom, 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 instead of a single boom. And that makes any analysis of 
the film and how it related to the original concept and how it related to the film's original concept significantly more complicated. That definitely affects it, like what, how you see everything in context. I mean, we, we saw that very clearly, Fox t- saying that they changed the ending, the Dabari and the scrolls around just in response to knowing what was coming in Captain Marvel. With Jean Grey, because she's very much the, the lead of a Dark Phoenix story, is this similar to how Jean Grey exists sort of in your head? How does Sophie Turner's take on the character reflect how, what, how you see her? Oh, I think Sophie Turner did a spectacular job. I have no problems with anything that Sophie or the rest of the cast did. It's just that just sheer weight of numbers what did X-Men Dark Phoenix have? It had Sophie. And what did Avengers have? 28 A-list <laughs> stars. Yeah. <laughs> I think the acting budget for that film was greater than the entire budget, even reinforced by the add-on for Dark Phoenix. That is breathtaking in, in terms of both concept and reality. The fact is that Simon Kinberg was... I think he started with a vision five years ago of how he, what he wanted to do with this film, not the least of which was his coming to Fox and saying, I, need this, I see this as a two-part film. The first part would be Phoenix. The second part would be Dark Phoenix. So the first part, you would fall in love. I'm presu- this is my presumption. You would be introduced to Gene and Scott and the team. You would fall in love with her as he does. You would sit on the edge of your seat as she went through all the events that led her to become Phoenix. And then with the second film, you would encounter Dark Phoenix. So this goes back to my challenge to Brian Singer back at the dawn of time when he said he was doing X3. And my feeling was, how how are you going to do it in one film? I mean, are you sure you, you know where you're going here? You need at least two. They said, no, I can get away with it. And I thought, okay. Well, he might have been able to get away with it. But uh, for me personally, I feel like uh, Brett Ratner did not do the job that Brian Singer would have done on that film. Uh, Zach and I disagree a little <laughs> bit on that movie. Uh, but uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, they, they definitely tried to cram too much into that particular film by having Phoenix and also the Cure storyline and all these other moving parts. Well, I think, and I think Simon was very much aware of it as, as he was working as one of the screenwriters. It's a very complicated situation. Any film is a very complicated situation. Any adaptation of an existing work is a really complicated situation. And when you add to that, it was not only Fox trying to bring its this saga to an end, it was the end of basically 20 years of Marvel movie making at Fox as Avengers was bringing 10 years of Marvel movie making, the first chapter of Marvel movie making at Marvel Disney to an end, it's complicated. And I think the film that Simon ended up making, especially given the superb talent at his disposal, was a very successful, enjoyable, positive, good project is it an ideal no i mean if i wanted to be an idealist i would say set me and john down i'll write i'll write the outline of the screenplay he'll do the storyboards and take it from there but that's not reality 
anywhere along the line in, in L.A. Yeah, obviously there are a lot of different decisions that go into adapting anything, uh, especially an epic tale like Dark Phoenix, onto the big screen. Uh, this let me, let me put it... Sorry, if I can oh, interrupt. No, I've told this story so many times, I figure I'll throw it in one more time. <laughs> in 1988, Stan and I sat down with Jim Cameron to pitch him the X-Men. And in the course of the meeting, what Jim said to us is he's pitching a brand new woman director to take care of the movie. As he put it, you haven't seen her film yet, her films yet, it'll be out in a year, but Catherine Bigelow will do this film proud. So you can look at it from the point of view, the creator's point of view of, holy cow, imagine an X-Men in 1989-1990 produced and directed by, well, produced by Jim Cameron, directed by Catherine Bigelow, what would that have looked like? Unfortunately, that's not what happened. So you cut ahead 10 years and you see what Lauren Schuler Donner and Brian and that crew did with X-Men. Well, whatever you may feel pro or con about the saga, the, the, the 10, 20 years saga of the, of the series, one has to step back and wonder if X-Men hadn't hit the, the ball out of the park with its... 99 point something million dollar opening weekend which in 2000 no one saw coming absolutely no one i mean until fox when they got the preview uh reports and instantly threw like another few million bucks at brian to say juice up the film <laughs> i think back then they were expecting something more along the lines of what they've been getting from blade uh and i believe um the punisher they were not expecting a nine-figure opening weekend. Nobody did that back then. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing that I, I talk about, you know, to put into context when we've been talking on, on our show and just other places about this, to consider the fact that we, this was even before the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. So, well, but that's I, the whole point. Yeah, Sorry to right, no, exactly. That's what I'm Would there have been a Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie if there hadn't been X-Men? Would and, there have been Iron Man if there hadn't been X-Men? You, you have to figure that the, the impact that that film made out of nowhere set the stage for Sony to say, hey, let's give Sam a shot, let's support him, let's see what right. he can do. And that certainly, three years later, two years later, gave Brian the, the chops to come back and say, I got Robert Downey Jr., let's kick ass. And that's where the, the impetus, I suppose, to, that, that's where the Marvel epic started to crest and what they thought was a wave turned into a tidal wave but I have to ask because I'm totally prejudiced <laughs> would that have happened if not for X-Men no, or would think... it have happened as quickly in the same impact or whatever if not for X-Men so if you look at Dark Phoenix in that context it A has a lot, of, a lot to live up to but I think in terms of, of the script that Simon wrote and the direction that he did and the star that he cast, he succeeded. He did a hell of a lot. The only problem is if Brian had found himself dealing with Iron Man, it would have been as more, a much more balance of equals. By the time you got to, to Dark Phoenix, dealing with Marvel is like, hi, 
I'm a six foot tall guy, and that's uh, Mount Everest. <laughs> yes, it's pretty it, darn big. It's a uh, giant man versus Galactus, and uh, the the point. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I would say it's uh, more like Reed Richards versus Galactus. <laughs> that's true. We're shorter. We put up a good fight, but it's still Galactus. <laughs> yeah, and just the the final point I wanted to make on this is that there hadn't been a good Marvel superhero movie before X-Men period. You know, there there was the Captain America movie that was direct-to-video, the, the Roger Corman Fantastic Four, which is more infamous than it is, you know, widely appreciated. Uh, and, but you're, you're leaving aside the ABC weekly TV version of Captain America filmed in Croatia oh, and... Yeah. Doctor Strange back in the seventies. I've seen that <laughs> Doctor Strange. Yeah. And there of course there was the, the Hulk TV series, but you know, yeah, so Oh wait. and wasn't wasn't what's his face from Knight Rider starring as Nick Fury? Yes, that that was just a pilot, but yes, uh, David Hasselhoff was David Nick Hassel, Fury. David Hasselhoff yes. is Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah, so but this is just adds to the idea that there were all these misfires and things that weren't right, and this came together at a time where people, I think, really wanted this. You know, we'd gotten mm-hmm. we'd gotten good superhero movies out of DC, you know, and then it was like, well, where are these these Marvel movies? And we finally got it, and uh, I think that they had such faith in the first X Men after the fact that I, for me, the second one was always my favorite because they actually spent money on it. You know, they they were afraid to to have Hank in the first one because they're like, well, we don't want him to look bad. We don't want to spend the money on a, on the beast, so uh, let's save him. So uh, that that I think that really worked in the second one. So of course the real joke was that in terms of X Men, Fox had so was so had so little faith in the genre. No one was signed to a three picture deal, oh. which turned out to be a problem when you had Ian McKellen going off to do Lord of the Rings yeah. when you had. <laughs> Hugh Jackman is the hottest thing in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, yes, and Halle Berry had just won Best Actress yeah. for um, Monsters Ball. So suddenly it was like, oops. So, but, but on the other side of the coin, the you know the other thing you had going into this was Sophie coming off uh, this sort of minor TV series, <laughs> which yeah. she'd grown up in. A modest you know, hit. It, it, in terms of timing, having Dark Phoenix come out barely a week, two weeks after the last episode of Game of Thrones, the thing that I find so frustrating from a marketing standpoint is that Fox gave it a good shot, but it it seemed like nobody wanted to, to take that step and say, hey, let's go see what Sophie's doing here, which is a, a disadvantage that one has when a film gets postponed as many times as X-Men did, the buzz on it, for which I'm really pissed about, was so negative and so long-lasting, everybody made their decision a year and a half ago and didn't bother to consider changing their mind. Whereas every, cliche as it sounds, everyone, almost everyone I've talked to who has seen it, loves it. But the after that first weekend, it's very, very difficult in the modern production environment to change attitudes. Yeah, I mean, just as as somebody who as we have to talk about these movies, it's the the force to give an opinion and to give a strong opinion, even if you didn't love it, you're forced to take an, an extreme side. But it's a fun movie. It does uh, a decent job adapting what is what is clearly a very difficult to adapt comic book 
into a film. I, I wanted to ask you about the cosmic side of it, because this is one of the other, I mean, it's almost it pales in comparison now that you just had Endgame come out, but this is a much more cosmic story than any of the other X-Men films have taken. Do you think the adaptation was was stronger for going into space, for dealing with that, but not going all the way the distance that you had with the would you have loved to see the Shi'ar involved in this version of the movie? Or was that too was that too far for a big screen adaptation? No, I mean that was the whole point. I think that was why Simon's original pitch was a two film deal. What can one say? I mean the Phoenix saga, the comic, was the first epic intergalactic crossover except that we didn't bother crossing over we just had everybody else on the sidelines saying what the heck's going on it was the <laughs> x-men going across the galaxy and coming face to face with the shiar on their own and winning the first round and then 30 odd issues later having to pay the price i guess the frustration is again it comes out of timing and it's Phoenix was the first dynamic alpha woman hero. Everybody before that had been a girl, Marvel girl, invisible girl. I mean, think of the concept of this. You've got an elderly white guy. He's the hero. And you've got his best friend who's a pile of rocks. And you've got the <laughs> white kid. Then you've got his girlfriend, the cute white girl. And, you know... One stretches, one's a pile of rocks, one catches fire, and the girl turns invisible. <laughs> but in 1962 terms, that's a valid analogy. It's a, it, that's a paradigm. But try selling that in 2020. Again, it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of context. The timing and the context of Dark Phoenix, the movie, was about as far removed from the timing and context of the comic as can be imagined, it's, you know, investing three, four years and, oh God, uh, close to $200 million in a project, how do you present the end result in a way that gives you the best option of, of re recouping that investment? And none of this takes place in a vacuum, not a commercial vacuum, not a creative vacuum. I think if if you could step back and look at Captain Marvel, look at Avengers, look at Dark Phoenix, look at Spider-Man as individual creative objects without the marketing, my hope is that the judgment would be a lot more balanced, that, that Dark Phoenix could hold her own with the other four as a valid, exciting, legitimate, dramatic vehicle. But that's not the way the, the commercial me, uh, film world works. This film, Dark Phoenix, did extremely well overseas. Why? Because they saw it for what it was. They didn't see it in this giant context of, ha-ha, Avengers is going to run you over with a bus. <laughs> or, it's like, well, we're, we're the little sailboat, and this is the mi million-ton uh, tanker. No matter how, which way you go, it's going to be a problem. But the thing I come back to I, I feel I, I must come back to because this is the way it is, is that the script worked, the direction worked, Sophie worked, the other members of the cast worked, Michael Fassbinder worked. All of them were right. They were true to the story, they were true to the reality, the, the 
X-Men reality that had been created over the previous four films in this arc. Um, for me as an audience, that, may, that, was, that was good, that was right, that was what it should have been. Um, but as for the rest of it, you know, there you go. It's a great point that the female characters taking the lead is something that we've been waiting on. It's it's it it's time to to see those stories that have been there, if not at the forefront in smaller bursts here and there. Do you think that's part of why Mystique took a more positive role in this version of the X Men? A lot of people were thrown off by a, who was a, a character as a classic villain took on much more of a heroic story in the such a classic villain. Uh, well, I guess she's a villain first in most in most fans' minds. Yeah, but most fan, fans' minds weren't the creator. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I, I think people are judging the the name Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I think that the, the, yeah, it's hard to get past the evil. That was before my time. Yeah, I know. That's uh, that's like coming in and trying to change the name of Coke or whatever. Uh, yeah, I know that that... Oh, wait, you're implying that Coke is related to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? <laughs> hey, I, I don't know. I think both ruin it's, lives it's, in different it's, ways. It's all an analogy for the soda wars. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, I guess I, when I say villain, I mean uh, opponent of the X-Men. Uh, and now she's she's joining uh, very much with the X Men in these films. Do you think that that is related to the want for more female X Men at the forefront of the story? No, I think it's cons- actually solipsistically it's consistent with my vision of the character from the very beginning. Great, that's that's what we want to see in these adaptations. Because Mystique for me has never been a villain. That for the longest period of time she was a hero. I've done stories where she and Logan were allies, friends, back in the 1930s and 1940s. The fact that her giving up Rogue to Charles to help her, to help heal her, because Mystique and Destiny were at the end of their ropes in terms of helping her cope with her ability, demonstrates a maturity, I would like to think, um, a willingness to think outside her box. And there is more to her than just This is the hero, this is the villain. In the same way that Magneto has never, for me, been a two-dimensional adversary. He has always, he has been, he is a person with a past. He is trying to reconcile the past with his present, but what he's doing from his perspective is not villainy. He's trying to save his people from potential extinction. And the interesting thing about the film, the films, the saga, from beginning to end, is oh, in all of the seminal X-Men films, he has a point. Charles is not going down the right path in dealing with someone like Stryker, in dealing with uh, the federal government, indeed in Dark Phoenix. It's like Magneto saying, I'm on Genosha, this is a cool space, you know, this is our guaranteed sanctuary, we're not bothering anybody. Well, that's, that changes. Yeah. Charles picks up the phone to say, help, and then, sorry, we're pulling the plug on it. <laughs> and that, that Kenosha sequence was that, amazing. That suggests to me that, as Magneto says to Xavier, all of your actions are fantasy. That when push comes to shove, Homo sapiens is going to lash out because that's the only thing they know how to do. So if you look at the dynamic of the, those two characters... Which one is the villain and which one is the hero living in a delusional fantasy and bolstering at every three scenes with a good sluggish scotch? 
<laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, circle back to the the comics for a moment. Uh, I'll, I've, I've mentioned to you in the past, and I'll tell anyone who listens that for me, the Dark Phoenix Saga from Uncanny X Men one twenty nine to one thirty seven is the greatest comic book story ever told. Uh, but when you think back on it, do you consider it one of the best stories you told, or are there others that come to mind immediately? Like, actually, I prefer this one or that one. Yes. But you don't want to tell us, which is fine. I, uh, uh, no, I mean, it's Dark Phoenix as a mainstream comic story, I am very, very proud of. But then three issues later, we had Days of Future Past. Right, yeah. Which, in my mind, carries exactly the same impact. But instead of doing it in 11 issues, we did it in two. And then. You have to look at the graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, uh, which puts the whole conflict in primal, real-world terms with an adversary who, while he is an adversary, he is doing it within the context of, at the same time, he is a man of the cloth. And if there is anyone who doubts that this is sort of a possible, this is too fantastical, a thing to happen with that per kind of person, perhaps they should watch a lot of evangelicals on TV. Yeah. I mean, I did 35 years ago, and it scared the daylights out of me, and it hasn't changed. It's just everybody's gotten older. <laughs> yeah, as, as a single issue goes for me, God Loves, Man Kills was uh, just sort of a revelation because, you know, as a graphic novel, uh, they were it was a little bit darker than I think the, you know, the monthly book was able to be. So, oh, no, no, no. But see, the whole point is, uh, forgive me uh, yet again for interrupting. No, please. That's why you interrupt it's us not a single all the time. <laughs> it's, it's, it, no, I mean, my point with, with God Loves is if you only have one X-Men to read in your life and you want to know what this is all about, you read God Loves. Yeah. Why? Because it's a story, again, within the context of the time and within the context of my run, it is a story that would not have been told in, the nor in Uncanny yeah. or in X-Men. Because it, to me, it has to be standalone because if you just put it amidst the forest of the other books, it disappears. And I did not... I, what Wheezy Simonson and I set out to do was to do something that was never intended to disappear, was never intended to be lost in the shuffle of a monthly title. It was a, it was a novel in the truest sense of the term. And again, as I said a minute ago, if you only have one X-Men to read, that's the one, because it tells you everything you need to know about the characters, but it tells you those things about the characters as people, not as super people, not as superheroes, not as costumes, but as human beings. And it puts them in a context that is as closely as we can manage it, the real world, which is why the first scene happens. I would not have done a monthly code book by having two kids murdered and strung up like animals. And that's why the person who finds them is Magneto. Again, the story is about why we're doing what we're doing and who's right and who's wrong. And throughout the whole thing, everybody comes to choices. Stryker comes to a choice. Charlie comes to a choice. Magneto comes to a choice. And at the end, 
where he says, you dare call that thing an animal pointing at Nightcrawler? And Kitty steps out and says, yes. Compared to you, yes. He is human. You are not. So the smart-ass Jewish you know, 13-year-old gets that <laughs> word. But the final act, the final moment, is a police officer doing what police officers are supposed to do, which is protect the innocent. So, you know, for me, that that's something that can't, I could not, you know, the comics, are, the monthly comics are governed by the comics code. This is a story about racism. And our attempt, our hope was to try and make it as real as, and as raw as possible. With the X-Men, we can do that. With the X-Men at that time, we could do that. The hope with the film God Loves Marv, God with the film kills. Dark Phoenix yeah. is that we were going down that road and the frustration is we got 95% of the way there golly it would have been great to get all the way there but it wasn't I mean again back in the day it was me and Brett Anderson and Wheezy Louise Simonson yeah, just the three of us that was it. Simon did not have that luxury. He did a wonderful job, but he was responsible to Fox. Fox, by the time the movie came out, was trying to cut the deal with, with Disney. Everybody is looking over everybody's shoulder. And that can't help but make everybody take a breath. Maybe we shouldn't go down this road. Let's try and make it a little better. What can we do to make it more marketable? Again, you know, when you're doing comics, you have so much freedom, so much more freedom than pretty much everybody else. And now you know why I get paid by the word. <laughs> uh, well, we could talk about Dark Phoenix for a whole hour or more, but I wanted to take away... Oh, well, an hour? I could go for a couple I, of days. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we could do the rest of the week, but... But I wanted to, uh, while you're talking about smaller characters in these smaller moments, uh, I think that the character we were all surprised to see adapted was uh, Legion, and to see that that story getting told over the course of three years, and you've you've seen the season three premiere. Mm -hmm. uh, how... Uh, how do you feel? Like I know you can't give us any any spoilers ahead of Monday's premiere, but how do you feel about the show taking this small character that you that you created that you helped create, uh, and now it's it's blossoming into this one of the most insane shows on television? What do you mean, small character? <laughs> or or well, like, I beg uh, too different. No, I, I think <laughs> I love the first season. I love the second season more. The third season is just like holy cow. <laughs> yes, it was wonderful. It is wonderful. It is one of the best casts I've seen anywhere. It's some of the best writing I've, I've listened to anywhere. Farouk scares the living daylights out of me, and I created him. <laughs> um, my only regret is apparently this is the last season. Darn. I mean, I could have, you know, I'd be sitting there waiting for next season. Sure. And yeah. next. And next. <laughs> but um, it's just wonderful. Uh, and there are surprises galore throughout the first episode. New characters, new realities, old realities. It's it's utterly crazy. And yet by the end of the episode, it all kind of sort of makes sense. And 
I, I sat there thinking, why do I have to wait three weeks to see what happens next? This isn't fair. <laughs> That's always sort of the problem when you get to a, a TV premiere. You have to wait so long to, to see so much of it. Uh, what do you think about sort of the, the visual representation of uh, Farouk and, and David? I mean, I, I think that obviously David doesn't quite strike the same image he did, uh, you know, when he first shows up, you know, when you and Bill Sankiewicz created him in, in New Mutants. But uh, I find that he's a great representation of the character. Basically, he doesn't have the hair. But other than that, I, I oh, think that he's, he's a great... I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't be cocky about that. <laughs> well, that, that sort of... I've seen, no, I mean, having seen some of the stills that have surfaced sure. online... Well, that's kind of what I've wanted to see uh, you know, is, since the show started. I, I would love if one of the realities were animated in the style of, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz's very unique art style. I, I, that's kind of what I've wanted since the show started, and I, I don't know that we'll get it. But uh, I, personally, I just love – it's a different take on the character. But when you have all these personalities, you know, every, every minute is a different take, really. The, the most extraordinary thing about Dan's performance – is how both Bill and I, firstly, he does look like. The elongated face that Bill drew in the comics is what sort of Legion evolved into. His, where we started from is, is disconcertingly similar to Dan. The presentation of Farouk is disconcertingly, it's not as exaggerated as John presented him in the flashback, but John Byrne presented in the flashback where he duels Charlie. Yeah. But boy, it works. <laughs> On the other hand, one could argue that Hugh Jackman is a little bit taller than the original visual of, of Logan that appeared in the comics, that Halle Berry is a little bit shorter. Yeah. You know, I mean, within film, you have, there is a, an element of fluidity depending on on how alpha a star you can get your hands on. So I don't have a structural problem with that. Yeah. What I find in terms of the Legion cast is how remarkably true to Bill's and my conceptions, the characters that, that are direct, for want of a better term, steals from the books are. How wonderfully distinctive the world is it, in terms of it is the United States, it is our world, but you know that they have uh, the twins, Carrie and Carrie. Yeah, where he's working with technology that is clearly as sophisticated, if not more so, than ours, but the hardware is all totally retro. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the aesthetic, the the style, the fashions, you know, I think when it first started, I'm like, wait, is this the 70s? No, they have an iPhone. You know, so it's 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 mind-bending just on that level, which I think is just another way in the show works. It is the equivalent of a comic book. <laughs> it's taking the reality that we know and turning it just a weird bit. And to me, that's wonderful. You don't have to judge it in terms of any other show on TV or what you see outside the window of your house it's familiar, but it's unique. And that's the essence of doing science fiction, of doing fantasy, of doing comics, that you look at the technology that 
of the helicarrier, of S.H.I.E.L.D., <laughs> the way Jim Steranko created it. And it's really cool. But I defy anybody to imagine a world where a contemporary world where you could build three helicarriers on the Potomac across the river from Washington and nobody notices. Come on. Yeah. So, you know, there, there is a necessary suspension of disbelief. I have no problem with it, with any of that when it's, it's done right. And for the most part, for what, for what Kevin does at Marvel, at Marvel Studios, as exemplified by the Spider-Man movie, uh, the first one, is just as wild and, and exciting as, uh, as what, uh, what Legion is. If I had my own wish as, as a creator, that's the direction to go in, where you see things and it's like, wow, that's our New York, except, you know, I'd be intrigued, I am truly intrigued to see if they're gonna do Galactus, what comes out the door, you know, that, that will be unique to the cinema reality that will be somewhat something more than a giant cloud of dust. <laughs> you know, impressive in its own way as what Stan and Jack did in FF48. Sure. Well, 49. Christian, if I could toss this one in here. Because yeah. um, uh, I guess that's the big thing with these, with these adaptations. It takes something that is, it, uh, it approximates what we saw on the page and makes it go to screen. So just like David's multiple personalities, we haven't seen – it's mostly been the, the times that we, they've used it. Uh, barring crazy theories that I have that everyone is a personality, a side personality of <laughs> David's, that they're not, they're, it's just him in another, with another tone or another accent. How do you feel about this shift from there being like much more distinct characters living inside of his head? Well, I'm not sure I've seen distinct characters living inside his head other than, um, ask me in eight episodes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, we're looking forward to season three, so that's definitely something that yeah. we are going to be watching for. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, our time is starting to dwindle, so I did want to move on. As we referenced, David, of course, first appeared in the pages of New Mutants. And I did want to ask you, there's so much speculation about this New Mutants movie that we continue not to see. And I, uh, I'm just wondering, what do you most hope to see from that movie, which as of right now will come out in March of 2020? I hope to see the movie. <laughs> well, there's that too, for sure. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard when it's coming out four times so far. Yeah. It's going back a year and a half, if not two. I'm actually solipsistically much more focused and much more excited about the idea of Bill and me teaming up again to do a 30-page 80th anniversary New Mutants for Marvel. So that's my focus at this point. Is is that is that something that's in the works? I, I literally asked you that question on Instagram, and you you basically said, "Oh, we hope so," but that's up to Marvel. Is that is that something that has has changed in well, the last yeah, week or so? When I when I answered on Instagram, we were under an embargo, and then about two days later, they they released the cover. So I don't know if you've seen the cover. I, I have not, but uh, we'll see if Ryan in the booth oh, oh, oh. can find it. Because <laughs> that was exactly what I was hoping for. And uh, this is this is what happens when you have two small children. The, the the important news of the day falls through the cracks. So I didn't even realize that we had this. Personally, I'm more excited about that than the movie, too, now that you say it. Only because 
I, I don't, and you know, it's probably unfair to that movie that it's been moved so much. And you know, it's like with Dark Phoenix, you started to get a feel that the studio wasn't happy when there's a, a lot of reasons to move a movie around. Sometimes you just, you know, again, you have another Game of Thrones actress whose schedule you have to work around for reshoots. So, I mean, the movie might actually, you know, not be what we're told, but uh, uh, at least uh, you and Bill doing a comic, I, I know the level that I can expect from that. Well, again, it comes down to a, a level of trust. Simon's uh, executive producer. Simon Kinberg's the elected executive producer, so I trust him. I assume it will be as exciting and as powerful as as they can make it. And I like to think of it as a really cool Valentine's Day gift. Prep gift. <laughs> you know, if it is the demon bear, if it is anything, I mean, Bill was on set a lot, and he ha- he thought it was wonderful. But if it's anything akin to the original story. Hi, Valentine's gift. We're going to scare the living daylights out of you kids. (laughs) Again, we'll have to wait and see. The challenge of doing an adaptation, any adaptation, is that the visual and textual creators of, of the project, in this case, me and Bill, had a very singular, specific vision of, of what we wanted to happen and how we wanted it to occur. That said, when I threw Bill the plot, I knew what I was thinking, but whatever, what clearly came back on every issue of the, the New Mutants was Bill Sienkiewicz's unique response to those, to, to my plot, to my story, to, to the characters. And his unique response goes down very un- weird pathways. That, for, a, for any film visualist to capture that, to embrace it, to encompass it on screen is asking a heck of a lot. So I guess we'll see. I hope that the end result will be as true to what we set out to do as as humanly possible. But more than that, I hope it will, will bring forth some surprises derived from the creators, from the filmmakers' own instincts and passions, as we've been watching now for two seasons on on uh, Legion. It's the fun of watching Legion, for me as audience, is sitting there going, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> or, holy cow, did we think of that? <laughs> you know, again, and this takes me back 20 years, to sitting there and looking at Hugh Jackman walking across the screen and realizing, oh, geez, that is Wolverine. You know, there's this fundamental moment when he and Anna Paquin are driving in his truck and, you know, Anna looks at him and says, looks at his hand, looks at his face and says, does it hurt? And he looks at her and he looks at his hand and he looks ahead of the road and says, every time. And when they said that, when that moment occurred in the premiere, I'm sorry, I jumped on my feet and yelled, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Because Hugh and Anna made that moment real. Yeah, it felt very human. Well, that's what film does. It can take what's written on paper and make it real. And that, that is what I think all of us hope for every time a movie comes along. And quite often we don't get it, 
But sometimes you not only get it, but you get it going down a road that is totally different from what you had in mind at the same moment as enjoyable and as enticing and sometimes much more so, which is legion. And you're left thinking, holy cow, why didn't I think of that? Why? <laughs> because it's just me and Bill. In this case, you've got the, the director, you've got the writer, you've got the actors. It's a synergy. And the beauty of Legion is it's, it has such a powerful and enjoyable and lasting synergy of its cast and the screenwriter and the director. You don't get that writing a comic. We get something different, which is also more fun in our way. But from, again, when we're in the audience, the camera gets reversed and we're going, wow. <laughs> Yeah, it, this, those introductions cool. that are so fun to watch, it's so interesting, and the different takes that and that you can go for. And X Men has has seen more varied takes, I think, than any other film franchise. And we're maybe looking towards another one now that Kevin Feige has all of his toys back together. Are, is there anything that you're looking forward to in, or any ideas that you have towards a new MCU version of the X-Men whenever it eventually comes to the screen? Truth? Yes. Please. I want my phone to ring and Evan to say, come on out, let's talk. Yeah. Well, at the very least, he should talk to you, you know. Ah, but, but see, that, again, that was, the, that was the ambition, the primal ambition of the meeting with Cameron. You know, it's like, I've been doing the X-Men then at that point for fi better, almost 15 years. Right. So my hope was, okay, they're gonna, we're going to do this deal. They'll go, you know, Cameron will film the movie. I'll go out to Hollywood. I'll sit there in the corner taking notes. And maybe when the time comes, fingers crossed, to do a second movie, I'll pitch it. And I'll, you know, make my way up the food chain. That was my hope. It's like everyone else. You want to be a part of every iteration of these concepts, in my case, these concepts and characters that I have worked so hard on and that I invest so much in and that I care for so much. But, you know, things don't always work out <laughs> quite the way uh, one thinks. You just have, if, in which case, you have to take a step back, reboot, go a different direction, and see what you can come up with that's better. Yeah, is there a character that you're that you or a character that you want to see tried again, or one that we haven't gotten to see on the big screen that, that stands out to you? Gambit would be fun. Yeah, we we sort of barely got him in Origins Wolverine, and that Channing Tatum movie was uh, sitting around for a while. Uh, I, you know, well, she's... That's, see, that's that's what irks me because that Channing Tatum movie was my my outline. My pitch. Oh, I didn't I mean, realize that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. See, that, that's what I mean about you want to get out there <laughs> right. and get your feet in. And every time I get my feet in, I seem to be stepping on quicksand. Well, in terms of storylines, I'd like to see The Brood. And I also feel like, look, I think Ellen Page did a great job as Kitty. I don't think they gave Kitty enough to do. She's literally my favorite character. And I just, I'm hoping that she's done justice at some point. I mean, she wasn't even included in the animated series, you know, so I always feel like she's getting slighted. Well, I mean, again, going back to Days of Future Past, the challenge with that is that the original story was set in the present, looking to the future. 
So the fact that you had Kitty and the X-Men in those days in 1980, The present day was 1980 and the future was 2010, which sounds crazy to think about now. Well, yeah, but the problem was in the movie, it opened in the future in 2016, oh, right. looking back to 1970. So when you have Kitty as a member of the Mutant Underground in the present day, she's still only 18 years old or thereabouts. Yeah. So that means she's born in the mid-90s. So that makes it highly unlikely that she could tra trade places with herself back in 1970. Right. The, only other, the only three characters who are valid in that respect are Charles, who had issues in those days, <laughs> Magneto, who was stuck in the, at the bottom of a hole in the middle of the Pentagon, yeah. oh yes, and Logan. Yeah. And the fact that it, Logan was Hugh Jackman didn't kind of made that an obvious way to go. <laughs> and if you notice, Mystique didn't exist in the future. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, that's a, great, that's a great observation. Yeah, so it had to be him. So, we're... so it, you find a way to make the film work within the context of its time. I have a lot of ideas in terms of how I would have made the second, I guess, last trilogy, starting with Days of Future Past and moving ahead to Apocalypse and uh, Dark Phoenix, different from the way it came out. But I'm on the East Coast, and I, I'm not part of that creative synergy. So I'm like you guys reading a story and thinking, wait, why don't they do this? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because you're you and I'm me. The same, the same thing applies to looking at film. They're them and I'm me and I can say anything I like, but I'm not part of that, that creative public uh, producing synergy. Well, we're proud the chance that would be a whole different equation. <laughs> We're practically out of time, but I did want to talk about something that you have more control over, which is uh, some of the stories you've written. Now, you recently had a Marvel Presents story uh, that showed up featuring featuring Excalibur, which I thought was a, a nice little reminder of the cross-time caper, which I believe ended about 30 years ago in the in, in our real time. Are, are you talking are, about the Berlin Wall? The Berlin Wall story, yeah. Uh, that, That's yeah, I, I, I got it a couple weeks ago, <laughs> so they haven't <laughs> sent you a copy yet. <laughs> And uh, I, I, I think that it's, it's interesting, though, because of obviously that being a, you know, a random time travel dimension story. I feel like you can revisit cross time anytime you want to uh, in, the, uh, in the near future. And I, I hope that the occasion presents itself again. I did think that that was a great story, you know, uh, Kurt dealing with the fall of the Berlin Wall, though. So I found that to be, a, a, you know, just a, a fascinating story crammed into, I believe, 10 pages. Yeah, but that's. Apparently, in terms of, of these kind of stories, I am restricted to my timeline. Right. So, uh, so, but on the other hand, that's 1975 to 1991, so it's not like I don't have a room to play with. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, the second one is by me is a, is a Wolverine Kitty Yukio story uh, by myself and Salvador La Roca that literally takes place between panels three and four of 
uh, I think, two pages before the end of the six-part Kitty Wolverine miniseries. <laughs> Which is great to hear because that that is one of my favorite stories. That six issue, the you know the the Frank Miller Wolverine limited series was great, but I, I love that six-part story, and uh, I've been talking it up on some of our other shows. So I'm glad to hear that there'll be a little uh, little uh, footnote or or pro. It's, not a footnote. it's it's a it's a primal rev- revelation. Actually. I love that. It's, Do you know when it's, we'll be? It able shows to... a side and reality of Wolverine that has that. Hopefully, I think we'll catch everyone by surprise, and which has never been hinted about in his previous thirty odd years, thirty five years. So, oh, that's awesome! Do you could, know when we'll be, we'll be looking for that to hit shelves? Uh, any minute now. Okay. Yeah. If, if, uh, if they didn't the tell you, the crawler was May, and the Wolverine is June. Okay. So right. great. Any any week uh, now. Check your your local comic book shop. For oh wait, there are still the local hits. comic book shops. There, there's a few. There's a couple. There's there's one. Uh, there's one uh, a, a few blocks from here that Neil Adams owns. So you know there's a few out there. So you just have to look for them now. Believe it or not, in Burbank there's like four. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, we live in Burbank. Yeah, there are there are about four or five of them. So uh, no, it's it's. I don't know if anything's premiering anytime soon. So I may not be out there for a while. Well, uh, we uh, we always appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you for always being so generous with your time. And if uh, people want to follow you on Instagram, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Chris Clearmountain, they can find you there. And of course, ChrisClaremont.com. You know, they can find pretty much all your appearances there. And uh, any other any other uh, work that you have coming up or questions or concerns can be found there. Uh, thank you so much as always, Chris. We really appreciate your time. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate having me. Thanks to Chris Claremont for taking the time to talk to both Zach and I. You can find Chris on Instagram at Chris Claremountain, and the website is chrisclaremont.com. And thanks again for Zach Wilson letting us have him on this show. And you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at that Zach Wilson. He also does a great podcast called Ships in the Night, which if you're familiar with the concept of shipping and fandom, he takes two random characters from completely different fandoms and asks the question, what if they got together? So you can find that on Apple Podcasts and everywhere your fine podcasts are found. And you can always find him on Twitter and Instagram at that Zach Wilson. Now, I'm very excited to announce that next week we're going to have our long-awaited Spider-Man Far From Home episode. This is going to feature myself, Will, Jeff, Zia, and from a land down under, Brad Morin. Uh, We'll see who else is able to join us for that fun. We're going to talk about the film. We're also looking to set the record for the longest Black Cast episode ever. This was set way back on Black Cast number 60, where we discussed Amazing Spider-Man 2. That's the second Andrew Garfield one. That episode that we did had a running time of two hours and 15 minutes. So when you download next week's episode, if you see that it's at least two hours and 16 minutes, you'll know that it was mission accomplished. But that's not right now. No. That'll be next time on the Black Cast. Yeah. Your end starts playing